This is Tech Press Critique. Today is Tuesday, December 4th. I'm Abraham Hyatt, and this is an ongoing look at the online media that cover technology. Today's episode looks at the impact of the Israeli-Gaza Twitter war in Washington, D.C., and at new research about live blogging. TechCrunch's John Biggs and I disagree about journalism. And this isn't a case where I'm crying out in the wilderness here. There are plenty of organizations that are doing exactly what we're doing, and they're doing really, really well. And you know that as well as I do. And Sarah Morrison from the Columbia Journalism Review talks to me about the fight, and yes, it's a fight, over the right way to do journalism. What kind of reporter or journalist do you want to be? Do you want to give people something that they could see on PR or do you want to give them something that they couldn't otherwise get? We all know that live blogs get a lot of page views, but until recently, no one had done much research into why readers like them. It turns out that they like them for more than just their speed and immediacy. The Guardian in the UK has been live blogging going all the way back to 1999. Last year, Dr. Neil Thurman, he's a senior lecturer and a program director at City University London, looked at The Guardian's traffic data for 10 of their live blogs, and also did surveys and interviews with the site's readers and journalists. He published his results last month. In the study, he quotes the 19th century journalist Edward Dicey as saying that newspaper readers, quote, like to have their mental food in minces and snippets, not in chops or joints, unquote. That, by the way, was written more than 100 years before the invention of Twitter. Anyhow, live blogging, says Thurman, actually gives them both. You know, the live blogging offers the mints in the sense that they provide regular updates. And that's what we think that readers you know, want, particularly when they're reading news uh, at work. So at work, people read a news site comprehensively, you know, first thing in the morning or during their sort of coffee break. And then come back to sites regularly for short periods throughout the day to see what's changed. And usually they don't dig deep into sites during those subsequent visits. So, you know, we think that live blogs, they match well with how we consume news, particularly in the in the workplace. But, you know, we also feel that they are providing something a bit more substantial. And not just offering, readers have shown that they want something substantial too. At some newspapers, public affairs stories get as little as 30% of a site's traffic. But with live blogs, that's flipped. Guardian readers preferred news live blogs one and a half times more than those that covered sporting events or television shows. What we speculated, does the format you know, meet readers' needs so well that it overrides their, their, their preferences for particular types of news? And this recalls the old uh, Marshall McLuhan adage, the, the medium is the message. I think we need to do a bit more research before we can say that for sure. And, and the reason I say that is that when we did the survey, we put the invitation out in live blogs. And so we were surveying people who are already readers. So they may have had a preference for the format uh, compared with the kind of general population. But it was certainly something that was, uh, that was an interesting finding. Another of Thurman's findings was even more surprising to me, and it may be the most significant. Readers thought live blogs were more factual and unbiased compared with other news stories. One reader told him, quote, I trust it more than I would some articles, in the sense that most of it is not opinion, it's more factual-based. 
This was, we think, because you know they're relatively transparent in the sources they use, uh, linking out to supporting material, uh, and also in their correction practices. So being very open about when they've got something wrong. You know, the readers felt it was somehow less mediated. The journalists didn't have time because they were doing this reporting live. They didn't have time to spin it or to insert their opinion in a, in, in a way that they perhaps would have done on a traditional story. And I think also because the structure is very different. It's not a traditional story. And so it doesn't have to kind of fit a particular narrative style. Neil Thurman's study is titled Live Blogging, Digital Journalism's Pivotal Platform. It was published on the website of a brand new research journal called Digital Journalism. There's a link to it at abrahamhyatt.com. In retrospect, a military live tweeting an attack on an enemy was perhaps inevitable. But it was a little mind-blowing nonetheless when the Israel Defense Forces launched an aggressive social media campaign as it attacked Gaza and Hamas in late November. Since then, the story has shifted to Washington, D.C. It's now a free speech issue. There have been some exceptions, but for the most part, Twitter doesn't censor content. But now it's being used to chronicle assassinations. A sovereign country and a group the U.S. classifies as a terrorist organization are using it to trade threats. Alicia Cohen is a writer at The Hill, a newspaper that covers Capitol Hill. She writes about how Congress is using Twitter for the paper's Twitter Room blog. I asked her what would happen if a U.S. government agency decided to follow in the IDF's footsteps. For instance, the FBI live tweeting in the middle of a raid on one of its top 10 most wanted fugitives. I think it probably is doable. I do think there would be a huge backlash, but more from Congress than from the public. I think the public would be fascinated. <laughs> There's no doubt that that kind of thing would raise a lot of questions from lawmakers about security, intelligence, and, and the type of things that they should be being told beforehand uh, if they are, in fact, you know, intelligence details. I think that that would be really tricky, and I kind of doubt if the FBI will do that anytime soon. For the most part, over the last few years, Twitter has tried to keep from censoring content. It's now saying that if a country asks something to be taken down, it will, and it's done that in Germany. Do you think this new development is going to force Twitter to change its approach to censorship? I do think that's probably the one big consequence that we should keep an eye out following the, all of this. We've seen Representative Ted Poe from Texas, and along with, uh, I think, seven other House Republicans, they called for Twitter to take down and ban some U.S.-designated terrorist groups. That was in September. And then the representative, in the aftermath of this Israel action on Twitter, uh, said that it justified the request and has asked that Twitter ban Hamas. Has this changed the way you see Twitter as a reporting tool? For me, yeah, as a reporter, it's it's awesome to have anybody live tweeting an event. And this was just a spectacular use of Twitter to live tweet. The IDF did a spectacular job of it. They, they just pushed out the information in real time. They had videos ready to go. They had photos. They had specific numbers. They had facts. They had senior officials involved in this, too. They had the prime minister and the president of Israel. They were also tweeting out statements. So... As a reporter, yeah, it was fantastic. I could write all this up immediately. Of course, again, this is uh, an PR effort. 
so I, it was a little bit one-sided, although Hamas's uh, military wing is also on Twitter. So you're dealing with propaganda, but you're also dealing with real-time information direct from the official source, which is incredibly valuable to a reporter, at least in the immediate aftermath of uh, an event like this. Thanks for talking with me. Yeah, thanks. It was good to talk to you. You can find Alicia Cohen in the Twitter room at thehill.com. Last week, the Associated Press, Forbes, TechCrunch, and a handful of other sites reported that Google was buying a tiny public Wi-Fi provider for $400 million. They'd gotten the information from an online press release distribution service and had published their stories without waiting for confirmation from either company. As we now know, the press release was a fake, apparently part of a stock fraud scam called Pump and Dump. The retractions and corrections came hard and fast. But TechCrunch was the only site that also published several posts defending their style of reporting. And that's when the fun really started. Kara Swisher, All Things D's co-executive editor, kicked off a two-day-long slap fest between a bunch of prominent tech journalists when she responded to those posts with, quote, Hey, TC, it was not a PR agency that was dead wrong. It was your process journalism, a.k.a. doing no actual reporting. At one point, Jason Pontin editor-in-chief at the MIT Technology Review, told TechCrunch, quote, what you do doesn't help anyone. I know it's not profitable for AOL. It's not interesting or witty or insightful. Do something else. Later on, John Biggs, TechCrunch's East Coast editor, responded with, quote, all you guys are doing is embarrassing yourselves in front of people who will eventually take your jobs. The fight basically boils down to this. On one side are the journalists who think that accuracy is paramount, even if it makes you slow to publish. On the other side are tech bloggers who believe that the real-time web requires you work fast, publish frequently, and correct mistakes as you go, and that other journalists are just fooling themselves if they think they're somehow exempt. Here's what I think. Churn may be unavoidable at times, but it should not be the default mode for journalism. I don't think our writers, and I don't think any writer, is posting just to get traffic. That's John Biggs, TechCrunch's East Coast editor. But in terms of the economies of the web and the way you build a big site like this, you essentially have to have as many posts as possible. I remember when I used to run Gizmodo, we'd, I did personally 28 posts a day. That was how everything got started. And there's compromises that you have to take in order to produce that traffic. And, and a lot of it's producing smaller posts, 200 words, 400 words, that sort of stuff. The day after the press release came out, Biggs wrote a post called churn, the problem of the new tech journalism. It made a few assertions I disagreed with. So I started off asking if he thought that traditional news orgs operated with the same mindset about speed as TechCrunch. I think they are. I mean, they have to be. There's no way that they can't be. What the Wall Street Journal was, for example, you're talking about a piece of paper that was curated by editors, that was written by writers who were writing in a certain style. And that would be almost exactly what we do at TechCrunch on, the, on a daily basis. We run through a certain uh, level of safeguards, some checks, and some stuff uh, sneaks through, just as it always has at the Wall Street Journal. I mean, John O'Sara at the, at the New York Times has dealt with uh, pump and dump stuff. But I would argue that there is a difference in that these old-school 
institutions want to operate at a slightly slower speed than TechCrunch does, than most of the tech blogs. And I would posit that that is their attempt to play some kind of a gatekeeper role that would go beyond what you described in this piece, which is trying to get out as much as possible out to feed the to the desire of the audience. And I do think that that does separate tech blogging. Well, I mean, if you want to look at it that way, I think they had the benefit of being a essentially a daily or a twice daily organ uh, for dissemination of this information. You don't always have that anymore. What we are is a, a I don't know, six times hourly uh, organ for dissemination of information about startups and about specific stuff. The idea that the that New York Times, for example, has some sort of special gatekeeper is at this point difficult to accept because I've seen inside of those newsrooms, I've talked to folks who work there, I've actually written for the Times occasionally, and while they're all excellent editors, they're all doing essentially the same thing. This is all, we're all practicing journalism, whatever, in, in whatever form and fashion that we've accepted. But I think that there is a difference between a reported article with, you know, with multiple sources and what tech blogs are doing. I mean, I was at, I spent three years at Read Write Web and I know exactly how this works. And the need for speed, the need to take a small piece of information and just run with it because that's what both the time demands are and, and, just, that's just how this how this game works. So I do think that it's not just about disseminating information. I do think that the tech world is doing something distinct from, for instance, the New York Times. It's been one of my goals to bring three-source story to the front page, to bring features to the front page, to bring interesting stuff that people want to read that's outside of this whole, this whole churn. And the churn has to be there. It's stuff that's up there. It's interesting to some people. It's not interesting to everybody. And it's our goal as a news organization to make all the stuff that comes out of the TechCrunch interesting to people. And whether that means pumping out a 200-word article on a single-sourced funding announcement, which we don't need to call an analyst for, which I don't believe we need to get an outside, outside assessment of. It's basically, this, this happened, these guys had this to say about it, the other guy had to say about it, and we can, we can put it out there. I want to go back to the, um, what you called the, I think you called it the endless wave of churn. No, you called it the endless wave of news. And the problem comes when the churn, that endless wave of news, crests over our ability to manage and vet. And then you go on to say that we're not any company's marketing organ. But I'm not sure that it's possible to say the latter when the former is true. Because if any tech blog, doesn't matter who they are, is moving at that kind of a speed, it's inevitable at some point in time that they're just reposting press release. Um, whatever the good intentions are for longer form stories, for multi-source stories, I know the volume that needs to come out to create the kind of traffic that our business models require. Um, it's inevitable at some point. Well, I'd also argue I've worked at Bloomberg. And I've seen some of the uh, some of the newswires as well. I would argue that the newswires are doing exactly the same thing that we were doing in that in that case. I, I was actually speaking with Reuters a few years ago when they were actually trying to outsource the headline writing headlines, which I would argue were blog posts at that point to India, where they would send over these short snippets and have it blast over the Reuters newswire. And is Reuters any better or worse for doing that than we are? I'm not sure. Maybe they were all maybe we're all to, to blame in this whole mess of churn. I actually see this as in some ways they have grown closer, but that the large media institutions are trying to um, decide what their relationship is with this type of news gathering and reporting. And that something like this comes up, it's sort of a, a more of an indication that these two sides are not going to meet in the middle, that they're not going to turn into the same product. 
it's it's sort of the the old school crowd on one side and the new you know the new crowd on the other side. The new guys are always going to be throwing bombs at the old guys, and the old guys are always going to be throwing bombs at the new guys. Eventually, they're going to meet. To say otherwise is false. And all these, all the news organizations are eventually going to end up online. They have to, and they're going to have to figure out the economy of being online. If I can go to the New York Times website and see that one or two stories change, and I can go to TechCrunch and see that 60 stories change, I'm going to be far more fascinated. If you want to reduce it to, I don't know, a crow looking at a shiny bauble, that's basically what's what we're dealing with here. And this isn't a case where I'm crying out in the wilderness here. There are plenty of organizations that are doing exactly what we're doing, and they're doing really, really well. And you know that as well as I do. And these guys are eventually going to converge. Maybe they're buying each other. Maybe uh, New York Times is going to turn into Mashable. I don't know. But things are going to change. At the Columbia Journalism Review, assistant editor Sarah Morrison writes the snarky, ongoing series, Hashtag Popcorn, which chronicles fights between journalists on Twitter. She watched the press release, Twitter Battle, unfold. And so I asked if she agreed with Biggs that only one kind of journalism was going to prevail. I am always surprised that readers don't seem to mind if they read something that hasn't been reported correctly or hasn't been reported at all. They'll still go back to the site and they'll still trust that everything they read on it is true. I would have thought by now that we would have seen that that new kind of journalism is the winner, if it was going to be, but it's still not. And even new sites that come up that do that kind of journalism are having long-form article initiatives, like BuzzFeed has a new long-form editor. So I guess eventually I don't think there'll be one or the other. I think maybe there'll be a compromise. So is this just a spat between journalists? I mean, obviously what happened on Twitter was, at the same time, there wasn't an overwhelming amount of outrage from from readers, at least that I saw. I mean, the conflict seems to be journalists talking about how journalism should be done, and it seems like readers just clicked and then left. Journalists are always surprised that the readers just don't seem to put as much value on their craft as, as journalists do, uh, but that's the reality. If people stopped going to TechCrunch because they got things wrong like this, then they would change. If they don't have to, then sort of why should they? And I think that's the tension that you get from other journalists, and that's why even though like the AP and Business Insider or a couple other places made the same mistake, TechCrunch got the brunt of criticism because people were just waiting to criticize it. And TechCrunch was just waiting to write several very defensive pieces about the kind of journalism that they do because they get this a lot. So the tech blog business model is based on page views. You know, the the more stories you write, the higher your page views are. But I don't think it's any secret that advertisers and the ad networks are becoming much more interested in engagement and, and not just eyeballs. And I think that's going to have the biggest impact in the coming years. Yeah, well, I think we're seeing a, a shift to branded content or native advertising, which the purpose is to create more engagement, make it more shareable and a more immersive experience for the reader rather than just seeing you know, an ad in the corner. BuzzFeed is a big believer in that as the future of advertising. Will that mean that quick hit pieces that just maybe rewrite press releases will be less valuable to advertisers? I don't know. Pix was explaining to me that the goal of his post was to show people how the smaller, faster posts create a financial base and an, and an audience base for the longer, more detailed stuff they're trying to do as well. 
That gets to what you were saying about, you know, we're going to end up with a combination of styles. But it also made me think that there, we're not going to see an end to this conflict about what people think is the right way to do journalism. What kind of reporter or journalist do you want to be? Do you want to give people something that they could see on PR or do you want to give them something that they couldn't otherwise get? What is, is your skill like getting it faster than, than everybody else? But when you do that, you can't really get defensive when you put something out there that's wrong because you didn't do your homework, which he actually doesn't defend in the article. He says, well, I can't defend that. But you can't get mad, and you can't get defensive, and you can't whine on Twitter if <laughs> people call you out. John Biggs is TechCrunch's East Coast editor, and Sarah Morrison is an assistant editor at the Columbia Journalism Review. If you haven't seen her latest hashtag popcorn installment, be sure to check it out at cjr.org. And that's it for this week's Critique of the Tech Press. I'm Abraham Hyatt. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Neil Thurman, Alicia Cohn, John Biggs, and Sarah Morrison. You can find links to all of the stories we talked about at abrahamhyatt.com. If you have any critiques of your own, leave me a comment or head over to iTunes and rate the show. Bobby McElver composed our music. He's Bobby McElver on Twitter. <laughs>